Let's take it to the edge. Let's get the flitting. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Let's talk about the night perspective. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Knife Perspective, where we give you the insight into Martin's site. So hey, wait, wait, wait. hang on. It, it sounds like you're the host. Yeah. You were the host That's last me. week. Yeah. Well, I just started running with it, so we're going to let this train roll for a little bit. Uh, you, sh- you sure this is the way you want to play this game? <laughs> At least for now. All right. All right, and... Uh, and my co-host is uh, Dan Eastland of Dogwood Custom Knives. Hi, everybody. Screw you, Kyle. <laughs> Alrighty. And today we're going to be doing a uh, doing a show that covers all things heat treating. So it's going to be hopefully a good show. We, last uh, show we talked about steel, and today we're going to be talking about how to make all the all of our knives hard so they're usable blades. Uh, we're going to start off with our sponsors. We have Dogwood Custom Knives for all your knife needs and uh, KH Daily Knives, who got slighted last time with only part of my knife needs. Which is a perfect but, uh, example of why you're not ready to be a host. <laughs> See, a real host wouldn't have let that slide by. They'd have picked up on yeah. that. I'm just saying. Well, I, I definitely got it in the edit, so uh, make sure make sure you listen to the last episode. <laughs> Make sure you listen real close, Dan. <laughs> All righty, and then we uh, we have our dealers. Uh, Old Town Cutlery does both of our knives, Dogwood Custom Knives and Cage Daily Knives. And uh, you can find Dogwood Custom Knives at Knife Center also. Uh, so make sure you give those guys a good shout out. And Old Town Cutlery are some really good people that have had a little bit of unfortunate luck. Yep. They got robbed last week, two weeks ago. And yeah. it was a smash and grab, and they trashed the display cases. They stole over $70,000 in knives. So if you're thinking about buying a knife and you want to help some good people out that could use a little help, go buy Old Town uh, either on their website or they've got their store cleaned back up. They are good people that could use a little help. Yeah, definitely check them out. I know they, they got one of my knives, and if you happen to see a – Ironwood Bushcrafter that might not be uh, one of the ones that was paid for. I know Lee said that they stole a lot of their in-house knives too, so they're going to be pretty easy to spot when they if they try to start unloading those on the internet. Yeah, I think that uh, is that the Dragonfly. Um, was that the Dragonfly knives or was it the store uh, store knives? I, I don't know the actual specific. I think it was some of their exclusive folding knives that they just. Oh yeah, that's right. Because they get some they get some custom runs. So, what are you working on this week, Dan? Um, I am finishing up uh, some cubs, some trail hikers. I haven't done trail hikers in almost in actually over a year. So, I have a couple of trail hikers coming out. I just finished fourteen kitchen knives. Uh, about half of those are going to go to Old Town, and then nice. a couple of those will go to a couple of local dealers. So they'll be out there tomorrow. I will be – actually, no, when this podcast comes out, I will have posted 
I've got number one of five, the knife set that uh, Todd Hunt and I did. And that's a M18 Anamagua with a clear Kydex piggyback sheath and blue on blue Firefly. And that's going to be up the web on the website for nine ninety five. That's a that's a sweet combo. Yeah, I I'm, I love it, and it really kind of came down to I just don't use it, and I have a hard time. I don't I don't really do safe knives. I know guys that do, and it's cool that that's their thing. But if I'm not using it, I feel guilty. So hopefully, I'm going to sell it to somebody that'll get that get out there and use it because I. I'm mostly down on the river now and the M18 is just, it's too heavy for clean, clearing grass and light cane. Uh, I've started using a machete more and more. I'm getting a M18 made by Todd. I'm pretty excited about it. Oh, believe me. I've heard about it. He is not <laughs> a fan of your carbon fiber BS in the middle of summer. Well, in his, uh, in his defense, he's had the carbon fiber for uh, two winters. So he didn't have to do it in this, in this blistering heat. Hey, that, that's a nice one for timing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's always a little bit longer than you think yeah well what you got going on uh this week i've been uh, working on finishing up a uh, santoku and a paring knife damascus ones that are going to go to a guy harleywood on uh, instagram and youtube he uh he ordered those at blade show for present and uh they're turning out really sweet. You're clearing blade show orders already? Uh, just that one because you kind of needed it quick. Oh, thank God, because you were about to make the rest of us look really, really bad. Yeah, then I then I start another batch of wedding knives for our old daycare people, and then my sister-in-law is getting a carving knife for her for her wedding in September. So, okay, working on a big batch of those. All right, I can forgive you then. <laughs> there for a moment, I was afraid we couldn't be friends anymore. Yeah. No, I didn't. I only got a couple orders from Blade Show, so hopefully able to keep up with that. Today we have Jared again from working with me. He's a metallurgist. If you haven't listened to the last show about steel, give it a go. Uh, Jared, you want to say hi to everybody? Yeah, hi guys. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, we had a good time last week, I think, and hopefully can have a good time this week. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Well, we didn't get a chance to, to talk about any of the the really technical aspects of, of steel and heat treat, like um, like the trolls or how to harden it or how to soften it. I mean, it's you can't talk about heat treat without any of those really important technical details. We'll cover it all. You know, that's, that's what I love about you. <laughs> you you want to give a little bit of a synopsis on your background on heat treating again for the, the listeners? Well, yeah, like Kyle said, um I work as a metallurgist at Navistar. I've been there for about 15 years. Um, my role there primarily is doing metallurgical failure analysis. But prior to that, uh, I spent about 10 years in the manufacturing industry and uh, worked uh, every day in a heat treat shop making gears and transmissions for military aircraft. So I know what it's like to have the sweat burned right off of your face when you're out there in the heat treat shop. So when something Kyle designs fails, you figure out why? <laughs> that could be a tough one, to be honest. He does some weird stuff sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. It's it's mainly me breaking somebody else's yeah. design. No. Me and Kyle are on the same team for the most part. <laughs> yeah. 
let's kind of do a little bit of an overview of the basic high level pieces of heat treat and then we'll we'll get into further detail basically you have some some heat treat prep that you do and then you heat it to a really high temperature then cool it back down and that helps to make it hard convert a bunch of the the structure into martensite and then you usually temper some of that martensite back so that it's a little more ductile so that it doesn't want to chip and be brittle. So it's kind of the the overview. If you're going to start with heat treating, the main thing you're going to need, the very first thing you're going to need is some sort of kiln. So either a furnace or an electric kiln or uh, some of the other bath type ones. There are two major companies and Dan and I just realized at the beginning of this episode that we actually have uh, each of the two ones. So uh, mine is uh, Even Heat that's uh, 22 and a half inches long. Uh, the KF series with their Ramp Master controller. Dan, you want to tell them about your Paragon? Uh, mine is 27 inches. <laughs> Just saying. Nice. <laughs> Mark drop. <laughs> um, so, somebody, somebody's going to be hurting from that one. <laughs> um, and I have been really happy with it. I guess I've been using it for 10 years now. And it has been an absolute workhorse for me. I have, I have, I've used it so much. I've already had to replace the heating element once. Nice. I, I'm probably tempering steel a minimum of twice a week in it every week, and have really been pleased with it. The only upgrade that I'm looking into now is they make a uh, an attachment so I can flush it with argon, which means no more foil, which I am really looking forward to. That'd be pretty sweet. Yeah, I, I am so tired of foil wrapping. Especially every time I have to buy a roll of, and for people that aren't familiar, uh, when you're heat treating at high temperatures, you need to do that in an oxygen-free environment. And the poor man's way of doing that is you use stainless steel foil. Uh, so not like you're not like aluminum foil. It's a, a heavy stainless steel foil. You put the knife and something combustible in that, and make a little airtight package. And then you put your package in the box or the kiln. And then as, as that heats up, the combustible will burn the oxygen out of that envelope. And that's how you heat treat it in a, an oxygen-free environment. But it is a pain to do. I'm sure there's a, some sort of joke in there about packages. <laughs> I'll let that one Kyle, go. Kyle, uh, you have got the filthiest mind. I try to have an <laughs> honest conversation with our listeners trying to impart a little knowledge about what I do with my packages and <laughs> of knives. And, and you've, you've got to take it to a dark, dirty place. This is, see, this is the reason you're not ready to be a host. Oh, all right. <laughs> and, uh, so the kind of one of the most common forms of uh, heat treat kiln is an electric one, uh, usually 120 volt or 220 volt. The 220 volt one will, will get a lot hotter a lot quicker than um, some of the other ones that if you want to not wrap your, your knives, even heat makes a salt bath kiln so that that you would heat up and basically make molten salt and heat treat in that environment where no oxygen can get to the, can get to the blade that helps to make a really extremely even heat distribution around the blade. Yeah, they scare me though. Yeah, they meet, they do meet I mean, too. One drop of moisture, you get a good bead of sweat that falls off your your forehead and into there, and bad things are happening. 
I mean, yeah. I, I admit that it does give a, a phenomenal performance, but I, I'm just, it's like a buffing wheel. I don't have a buffing wheel in my shop. No? No. No. Um, all right. Yeah, I, I do all the polishing by hand. I am not having a blade get caught by a buffing wheel and go sling in somewhere. I mainly use it on my, my handle material. Uh, give it a little luster. You, you, you rub your... My handle. Yeah. Who's the one with the dirty mind now? What are you talking about? I'm just talking about buffing your handle. I mean, I do mine by hand. You use a machine. It's just two different perspectives. One of the other heat treat kilns that I actually learned from listening to the Mark of the Maker podcast, Tom Krein was talking about it, was a Paragon makes a sand bath. So they actually fill it full of sand and heat up the sand and then flow gas or air in the bottom makes the the sand kind of be like a a liquid. Hmm. So that uh, gives you a little bit safer than the salt, um, but it's about twice as expensive as the salt bath ones that are about twice as expensive as the electric ones. Hence the reason both of us have electric ones. Yeah. Both those still use electricity to heat up the salt or the sand, but that just helps to, to make sure it's completely even all around the blade. And you don't have to do... They say you don't have to do as long of a, a soak time on your blades. Hmm. But uh, Paragon has a really good how to choose an electric kiln drop down that'll be linked on the in the show notes. So you can click on that and there was a whole bunch of drop downs that seemed really good to hone in on what kind of knife you needed. Do you have any more on heat treat kilns there, Dan? Uh, we've pretty much covered it, unless you want to start talking about – I know a lot of my buddies that forge will do their heat treat and their propane forge. Okay. Mark Hopper, I, mean, I have seen him. He can judge color and be within 5 to 10 degrees. I mean he's got a phenomenal eye, but he's a master smith in three different countries. Um, guys like me, I like an electric kiln because the – the thermostat on my kiln is plus or minus two degrees. So when I set a temperature, I know exactly what temperature I'm going to be heat treating or tempering at. If you're going to use a, a gas forge or a, a coal forge, it it really comes down to the, the eye of the operator. Yeah, and moving the blade around too in that side of that forge to make sure it's evenly heated. Yeah, because you're going to get hot spots in there. And again, you can spend 30 years mastering it or... You can have an electric kiln that is dead on the day you pull it out of the box. Figured we'd help uh, help Dan out here with uh, going through the Crucible 154CM data sheet. The single finest uh, blade steel known to man at this time. Just saying. <laughs> and I would like to... What's that? Yeah, so that's the stuff you're using, Dan? Uh, oddly enough, it, it just so happens to be. Uh, wow. That and it's uh, nice choice. Yeah. Well, that and S35VN are, are my two to goes. And believe me, I have taken no money from Crucible. But if you're listening, I'm I'm up for it. <laughs> so we'd like to give a shout out to Alpha Knife Supply. They have a great uh, selection of data sheets put together and a really easy able to pull from Crucible and a bunch of the the other different manufacturers of the steels um, data sheets. Yeah. Um, the data sheets are really good because there's lots of people that spend tons of time going through to figure out how to get you the exact best uh, heat treat on your steel. It is absolutely worth setting up an account for them for access to their library. 
because they don't spam the hell out of you. You'll get maybe one email a week from them about what's available. I don't even think I get get it that often from them. But like you said, it's not only the factory sheets, but there's a lot of cheat information from the older guys that have dialed it in. So for the cost of one tiny email address and not getting much spam, it's totally worth it. Jared, you want to kind of walk us through the 154 on the, the first part? Sure. So we're just going to walk through this section by section that we want to do? I think so. Okay. I think that's... Uh, <clears throat> so first slide. <laughs> so, so yeah, we're looking at a two-page data sheet. They really do a pretty nice job of publishing a lot of the kind of relevant information for this particular material. And first up, it looks like they have a couple micrographs. So those are photographs taken at high magnification after a sample of the steel has been cut and polished to a mirror finish and then etched. And the pictures are black and white, um, so they don't show a ton of detail. But I think what they're trying to tell us here is that the CPM version of this steel has more and finer um, carbide sizes. And I think that helps with um, making the wear more even and probably help them maintain hot hardness too. Uh, it helps with the wear resistance as well, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so the micrographs, and they list a few typical applications. Of course, the first one they get on there is cutlery, bearings. Uh, I think most of these high-carbon stainlesses were probably developed for bearings. They probably go back to the, I don't know, 1970s or so. Um, and not necessarily because they were corrosion-resistant, but some of the same things that make stainless steel stainless also improve the high-temperature properties, and that is a critical uh, feature for, for bearing materials. Um, and corrosion resistant tooling. I know the non-powdered metal version was developed specifically for aircraft turbine blades to be very, very hard and be able to withstand the high temperatures of the, the combustion gases mm -hmm. going through there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it looks like they put together this data sheet with um, knife makers in mind because the next section they have is a blade steel comparograph, which I think is a made-up word, but I like it. No, it's an industry term. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm going to start using it. I know that much. Uh, and they're just comparing uh, several properties uh, among several different steels, uh, wear resistance, toughness, and grindability. And, of course, uh, the CPM 154 comes out uh, at or near the top in all those categories. Just a coincidence. Uh, just a coincidence. Uh, but, no, I think it's, it helps uh, It helps kind of judge the differences between the two different materials, although there's no scale on any of them, but it just – in metallurgical terms, uh, toughness tends to mean, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand it means that how far something will deform and then return to its original shape. Um, how, uh, no, that is really more a function of the yield strength. Okay. Okay. Toughness is, uh, there's actually a test you could do to measure toughness. There's a, a unit that you would report toughness in. Usually it's called K1C. But really what it gets to is it's the ability of a material to withstand kind of catastrophic failure in the presence of a defect. So if you have a tiny little crack, some steels are going to just take that tiny little crack and it doesn't take much energy to then propagate that little crack until the whole thing comes apart. But steels that have good toughness, you have that same tiny little crack, but it'll take a lot more energy to drive that crack all the way across and, and separate it into two pieces. Huh. Now, that that's kind of the the, yeah. the dictionary definition. 
people will refer to a lot of different properties. You know, it's basically how much will it uh, deform before it breaks in half. Well, and I would imagine as with everything else in knife making, there are two or three different definitions for every word. Yeah. Yeah, you see that one from time to time. And then wear resistance resistances can be translated into edge retention, correct? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, so so wear resistance is just what it says, right? It's 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 the ability of the the knife to not uh lose cuz cuz wear is really losing material from the knife blade or any surface uh when it's, you know, being moved against another body. So, I think I don't know, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of times when your knife gets dull, that's sometimes more a function of kind of chipping or or dings in in the edge. Is that is that correct or is it or, or do you generally more of a dulling of the actual kind of tip or cutting edge? In my experience other than trauma that causes a, a ding or a chip, it yeah. is it's the edge wearing away. So rather than having two planes meeting at a, a very keen edge, yeah. they start okay. to wear away and that edge rounds over. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I mean that's that's really definitely a function of wear resistance in that case. And I found the inverse to it is the more wear resistant it is or the, the more edge retention it has, the more it takes to sharpen it. Sure. Because yeah. Because you're trying to wear it, right? Exactly. That's what you're doing. Yeah. So there's a lot of interesting ways to measure wear resistance. Um, a lot of interesting tests that they do to, to, to try and quantify that. Is there any sort of specific scale or is it? The ones that I'm familiar with deal with weight loss. Um, or time to so if if you have in extreme situations when you're wearing two surfaces together they'll actually kind of uh micro weld themselves together two metal surfaces anyways and most of the wear tests that you find in in industry are really geared towards metal on metal mm -hmm. wear so a lot of times when you talk about how you quantify it it's um time until you see that kind of micro welding or it's weight loss. So you'll have just a wear test where two surfaces are rubbing against each other. And after a fi fixed period of time, you'd measure one of the, the pieces to see how much weight it's lost, right. how much how much metal has come off of it over that time. That makes sense. Yeah. But there's a lot of ways to do it. A lot of ways. Now, there seems to be some blasphemy up here. Uh oh um, At the top, I see uh, carbon as 1.05%. Oh. But this is a stainless steel. How can a stainless steel have more carbon than a high carbon steel, like uh -huh. 1095? So, so I'd say a couple things. One is if you're going to quench and temper anything, it's got to have some carbon. Um, but I think we talked a little bit about stainless in, in our last episode. And one of the things that we kind of categorize steels by is the amount of chrome. And one common definition of stainless is something that has more than 10% chrome. So I think that's probably where they're getting the stainless nomenclature from. Well, and that it's it's corrosion resistant. Yeah, and, the, and that's the function of the chrome, one of the functions. Mostly I just wanted to, to thumb my nose at uh, some of the high carbon steel versus stainless steel conflict and, and just not so subtly point out that this steel happens to have more carbon in it then high carbon steels like 1095. Yep. Take that, you reenactors. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just cost me some clients. 
yeah, you might not be selling as much O one in the next coming weeks. You know, I have actually, I probably am to the point now where I sell maybe fifteen O one blades a year. Mm-hmm. Some of it, I think, is because I do so much culinary work now. But overwhelming majority of what I sell now is typically particle steel or AEBL. And what is AEBL? Uh, it is a. Uh, it's, I believe it's Scandinavian. It was originally designed for razor blades, mm-hmm. and it takes a very keen edge. It's uh, fully corrosion resistant, but is not as wear resistant as the particle steels. Okay. So it's a little easier to bring the edge back. Mm-hmm. A lot of chefs like it because they can use a traditional steel and hone the edge, uh, where the particle steels, you need a diamond. Right. Um, so it's uh, – it takes a really fine edge, like a high carbon steel, but it's you sacrifice some of the edge retention that you'd get with a particle steel, but in return you get ease of sharpening. I see. So they have uh, usually up in the right hand corner, at least on Crucible data sheets, you'll find the material composition, and, and like Jared said, we went through what a lot of those different elements do for the steel in the last episode, and then you have some of the the physical properties that are mainly what. Uh, what engineers use to fill in a lot of their solid models and CAD uh, computer analysis stuff. Then in this particular one, it talks about machinability. Do you want to talk about some of the, what machinability might mean, Jared? So machinability uh, usually uh, is rated. I, I don't see any numbers here because probably it's off the charts, to be honest. It usually is rated in terms of how mu- how easy it is to machine relative to a standard grade of resulfurized steel. Resulfurized is kind of uh, usually set at 1.0, and then other steels are rated as you know 2.0 being twice as easy to machine or 0.5 being half as easy to machine as this resulfurized steel. And that's really its ability to form machining chips. So that doesn't really refer to grinding. Now, they do mention here that it's easier to machine and grind than standard 154 CM, probably because of the smaller carbide size. Uh, general machining parameters are similar to 154 and 440. So, I mean, this, this is not what you consider a machinable steel, particular, not easy to machine. Um, I know it'll eat up uh, Norton Blaze ceramic belt. Yeah. Yeah. So any of these stainlesses, I mean, they're difficult materials to machine. But that, all that means is you need to invest in you know higher quality cutting tools. Not that you can't do it by any means. Yeah, it, Depending on the size of the blade, I'll upcharge as much as $50 a blade, $40 really? a blade. And that is that, – that goes straight to the extra cost of belts. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean it, like an 01 steel blade, I can make five knives with one ceramic belt. With uh, CPM 154, I can make one knife per belt. And that's wow. that's 50 bucks right there. <laughs> Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, none of this stuff is going to be easy to machine or grind. Which is also why a lot of the larger man- – I assume that's why a lot of the larger manufacturers don't use it. Yeah, yep. I imagine you are correct. Um, okay, so we're getting into mechanical properties now. Um, and we're listing uh, – okay, so here's some wear resistance measurements. So this is uh, probably pin-on-disc abrasion. And and they're giving those results in milligrams. So again, that's weight loss. Wow. So a smaller number is going to be better. And it's um, significantly less than 440C. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you need to be aware of the 
kind of the specific kind of test and the test conditions when you're looking at those numbers because they can vary a lot. So I'm sure that when they're presenting two sets of data on the same data sheet, it's, it's a legit comparison, but you might be careful when comparing, you know, from different manufacturers, for instance. Make sure they're using the same test parameters. Same units and same test parameters, yeah. And it looks like it talks about some hot hardness that you had mentioned before. Yeah, so again, I, I don't know how relevant this is for, for knives, but certainly for bearings um, and, and other components, it's important that it maintains its hardness at a high temperature. And that's that's all this is telling us here is that, you know, you're retaining a lot of that hardness at temperature. And that's really a function of the molybdenum content and to a lesser extent, the chrome content. Because that the martensite is going to temper back, but those carbides, they're not really going to be affected at, at elevated temperature too much. So the, the carbides are really what give you that high, hot hardness. And the, the martensite is that grain structure we talked about last episode. That's yeah, the, the, exactly. The very dense structure that we're we're all trying to get as knife makers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, those, those hardnesses are, are – those temperatures are 400, 500, and 600 degrees, which is well above what we – would use for temperatures for knives. Right. Yeah. When, uh, yeah. So a carbon steel, for instance, you know, if you tempered it at 600 F, you, I got to imagine to be in the low forties, maybe mm-hmm. for a high carbon steel. Um, yeah. I'd have to check a data sheet, but it plunges pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, I think for O one, I, I seem to remember off the top of my head that we tempered about 450. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll get you in the, the 58, 59 range. Okay. But I seem to remember it drops off really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how, if that particular property is useful in, in, in knife making, but, um, it is kind of an interesting property of a lot of these materials. And then we flip over the, the data sheet and then most of this is all the actual heat treatment mm-hmm. part of the, what we're interested in for this and episode. This is where the trolls come in, correct? Oh, I don't know, is it? Yeah. So my buddy Clay, I'm not sure if, if uh, over at uh, Knife Magazine, I don't know if it's original to him, but I was really confused on all this because there's a lot of big words. It was terribly confusing. And he broke it down into simplest terms for me. Because as we all know, there's trolls in the steel. And when you heat the steel, the trolls will hold up their shields to protect themselves from the heat. And then if you quench it really quickly, you know, you make it cold, that freezes the trolls with their shields up so the so the steel is stronger. Well, that's pretty much it. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Once I realized there were trolls in the steel, everything else made sense to me. All right. I got to write that down. Hang on. Yeah. And I, did, I didn't even have to go to college to learn that. I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> I got to get my money back. <laughs> One of the guys, Jeff Fader of Fader Knives, uses the the analogy of the creme, creme brulee. So you put the sugar on there, you heat it up uh, till the till that sugar kind of melts, and then it cools and becomes super hard. So you, uh, that's what we're trying to do with the steel there. So it caramelizes into a crystalline structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. That was one of the ones, one of the examples he used that um, made made a lot of sense to me. Apparently that works a lot with chefs. Take note. <laughs> Food analogies. All the all the chefs know about creme brulee. Mm. So uh, one of the first things on there for the thermal treatments is annealing. Yeah. You want to 
Let's uh, explain a little bit about what annealing is. So annealing is typically to put the steel in a more uh, workable or machinable condition. It's it's you're definitely going to soften the the material. It tells you right at the bottom there the annealed hardness is two thirty five Brunel. Brunel is a different um, hardness scale that probably I think maybe equates to low twenties Rockwell C. Um, and yeah, if you're going to be doing a lot of working to it, um, you would kneel it to put it into a softer state. I would imagine, or maybe you know, that the steel that you buy, is it in the anneal condition typically? Uh, typically, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. And my understanding is if you do a lot of working, like forging it mm -hmm. or casting it, mm -hmm. a lot of stress will get s stored in the steel. Mm -hmm. And that annealing relieves that stress and reduces the chance of cracking on the finished product. As well as making it softer so it's easier to work. Yeah. Well, I don't think you would normally sell a blade in the annealed condition, though, would you? No, but I know some of the guys, especially with forged blades, mm -hmm. uh, once, they've, once they're finished with the forging process, they'll anneal it to release any okay. stress from the steel that was built up okay. during the forging process. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. once that stress has been relieved, then they'll start the hardening process. Yeah. It's less likely to warp with that internal stresses. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I was going to ask. Uh, it's mostly a, it's mostly an effect when you're doing a, a hidden tang or a rat tail tang knife. But all the old school guys always told me you never have a ninety degree angle because that's a, a stressor that you sure. you always wanted a rounded edge. Yeah, absolutely. But I have heard guys carry that out to the point of that even their pinholes, they'll round those off. And that seemed like that they were carrying the right concept to an unnecessary degree. Um, that you know, having a right angle in the profile would be a problem, but the matter of just a pinhole being crisp at the top and bottom is not going to be a, a place that stores stress. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, you have the the, the circle there. Um, I I chamfer the the holes for my pins just so that it's easier to slide the pins in when I'm epoxying it. But I don't really see a. Uh, usually, you're more worried about ninety degree corners where it's um, not really like a corner. It's more of like a inside where it's kind of like inside the part, like an inside radius. Instead of like a instead of an outside ninety. That's part. what I assumed, and I chamfer for the same reason. But it was also some of the old school guys that I had worked with had told me that, and I never knew if they were right or wrong, so I did it anyway just in case. Well, on like on your hidden tangs, you'll have if you have a a, a ninety degree corner there when you when that tang flexes, that's making that uh, stress concentration concentrate right at that. 90 degree spot on the the tang that's that's why a 90 degree corner would be really bad at that location i don't really think it would matter on the for like a pinhole that makes sense with this new piece of information i'm going to reward myself with another sweet baby jesus <laughs> yeah what what is the what is the sweet baby jesus sweet baby jesus is a little bit of nectar uh from dewclaw brewery it is 
a chocolate peanut butter porter. That's that's not like a dear sweet baby it Jesus. It looks like Reese's in a bottle. It, it pretty much is. And uh, no, wow. no, um, dear sweet baby Jesus is what you say when the cops are behind you. Sweet baby Jesus is a lovely little bit. So it's a porter, so it's a nice dark beer, but it's got really heavy notes of chocolate and peanut butter. And it's not the kind of beer that you drink. Like I just cut the grass for six hours in the Georgia sun and I want a beer. (laughs) Um, But it is a lovely, it's the end of the day. It's a little complex. It's I'm going to enjoy the flavor of the beer. So it's one of my favorite kind of at the end of the day, I'm going to have a dark, heavy beer and and really enjoy it for a few minutes. Or I just got a question right, so I'm going to have a beer. You got to reward yourself for the little victories. Because those are the only victories I have these days. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the next – one of the other questions we had about annealing was someone asked, is there any benefit to annealing multiple times? Um, or is just one time good enough? No, I'm not aware that there's really any benefit as long as you do it right the first time. That, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, you gotta, well, and basically the recipe is right there, right? Hold it for two hours as long as you do all that stuff. I don't know that there's a point to doing it a second time. That's the other nice thing I like about my programmable kiln. Yeah. Is I can program the steps and the hold times and then just walk away. Yeah. Because uh, some of these, uh, some of the particle steels and some of the others, it's bring it to this temperature, hold, then bring it to this temperature and hold. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a pain if you just got to sit there and watch it. Yeah. That becomes more important when you have um, a part that you're heating with uh, different cross sections. Mm. And, and mostly I mean thickness when I say cross sections. Yeah. Uh, because the whole key of heating and quenching is that you want the part to heat up at the same rate and cool down at the same rate. That's how you avoid internal stress. That's how you avoid cracking. That's how you avoid um, distortion. So, so if you've got a uniform, uniform thickness, the the graduated times are less important? Yeah, yeah. That's good to know. I've been doing some stuff that maybe I didn't need to do. Yeah, you want to make sure that when you heat that up that your part is that entire heat all the way through. So if you had like a bowling pin, right? you wanted to make sure that the bottom of the bowling pin was the same temperature as that, that very top part of the bowling pin, since it's less mass is going to heat up a lot quicker. Come in. Yeah. And you're going to pretty high temperatures with most of these. So, and at some point um, we're going to talk about soak times down here. And I do have some questions about if there's any sort of formula, because a lot of these data sheets are for half inch, or one inch thick materials. And I use, you know, eighth to one sixteenth inch materials. Mm-hmm. And if there's some sort of ratio that cuts back on your uh, soak times, because mm-hmm. some of these steels, uh, an excessive, uh, an excessive amount of time at temperature can have a really adverse effect on its quality. Yeah, absolutely. So that's just a little warning that I'm going to, I'm going to ask you some questions in a minute. Or it's a tease to our listening audience. Duly noted. Keep listening, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so the next part on the data sheet is stress relieving? 
Yeah, okay. So, And they give you two different options if you're stress relieving an annealed part or a hardened part. So is that something you typically do, stress relief? Uh, not mm-hmm. not really. I... Yeah. For stock removal, uh, you put very little stress to no stress in the steel. Yeah. That's one of the advantages yeah. to stock removal like we do versus yeah. forging. Whereas if you, you push it out of shape, you're putting a lot of stress in the steel. What we do mm-hmm. – um, I've had some people smarter than me say that one of the advantages to stock removal is that's not a necessary step. I would buy that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Stress relieving is important when you're plastically deforming the material because, which is what you just said, right? When you're plastically deforming it, you're. Um, that's the common word for hitting it. it with a hammer, right? Yeah, bending it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you've got if you're if you're bending it, you're plastically deforming it, then you might have reason to to want to stress relieve it. You kind of allow the structure to reset itself for I think stock removal, grinding, and stuff like that. It's not quite as important, probably. And even though it's not on the the heat treat sheet, uh, we should probably talk about some of the the pre heat treat prep before we. Because we're going to probably talk about the the other things on as we go down there a lot more in depth as we're going through here. Okay. So, like Dan had mentioned before, for stainless knives especially, you need to wrap them in a stainless steel packet that can withstand the temperature that you're going to for the the austenitizing temperature. That helps to keep the oxygen away from the blade so that the carbon doesn't come out of the steel, so it has less of a Less of a hardenability. And I screwed up one time and thought I was getting a great deal on some heat treating foil. And it was rated for 1900 degrees and I was heat treating at 2000. And I welded the foil to Mm. my blades. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wove a tapestry of obscenities that still hangs over Georgia today. So I know you you mentioned putting putting some paper inside the packet to to burn up the the oxygen. I said combustible. I'm not giving up my secret secret formula. Okay, well, some sort of combustible in there. I used to, or I didn't really do anything inside the packets. I used dichem on the outside of my knives to describe out the the profiles when I grind them, and I just tried one time wrapping them without doing cleaning all the dicum off which usually takes quite a while and makes my hands blue and uh, i actually had some of the best um sealing of my packets when i just left the dicum that's my on secret there. secret formula dude uh, seriously i i i, no. I give you these pearls of wisdom you and you t- turn around and stab me in the back <laughs> and that was not for public knowledge i didn't know you did that yeah because uh I've, man, I tried tissue paper and wood chips and everything else. And one of the problems were it would cause the packages to swell. Mm-hmm. And that I just put a heavy coat of dicam on both sides of the blade. And that'll smolder and burn and it'll burn out the oxygen. But it, And the ash that's left behind by the dicam helps seal it as well. And it keeps the package okay. from ballooning up. I didn't put. I never put any extra dicam. I just left what whatever was on there from when I originally sprayed it. Describe it on there. They make spray dicam. So so they do make it in an aerosol. Uh, I have not had very good luck with spraying it uh, more than two or three times before it just loses all of its propellant mm. inside it. There is. Uh, I bought some. Or I have a fine mist sprayer that I use for when I was doing my leather. Uh, so it would, would fine mist spray yeah. water 
And I put some, I bought a, bought a jug of Dicam, put it in there. And that has been one of the best things. That's I've brilliant. Had. Cause I still use the little, uh, uh, wool dauber. Okay. I have to try that. That's a very good idea. And it pains, pains yeah, me I, deeply to say that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, those fine, super fine mist sprayers on Amazon were like, 10 bucks, I think. Yeah, like that you would use before you did tooling and stuff. Mm hmm. Yeah. You should go get yourself a sweet baby Jesus because that's a good idea. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have any of those around here. I just have a uh, an original Coors, huh? the, the nectar of uh, John Elway. That is a very good, I've just cut the grass for three hours beer. Yeah. Uh, also, with some of the, the preheat prep. I know some people use a spray or dip, uh, and Turco was one of the ones that I've I've seen propping up. I know a lot of the Fiddleback Forge guys um, have used that on their on their stainless steels, so they don't have to wrap them in foil. But that stuff is pretty pricey and a little bit hard to find. Mm -hmm. I think that that just kind of makes a, a heat treat layer over the the steel. Yeah, I, uh, Jared, do you do you know anything about? that Jared or want to comment any on? Well, so, I mean, you know, when you're not running an atmosphere in your furnace or when you're running an air atmosphere, I think there's probably two things that you're concerned with. One is oxidation, both external and internal, and then or decarburization. Um, because if you heat uh, a piece of steel up, that's got 1% carbon in it. Right. Mm -hmm. And the air around it has essentially 0% carbon because air is just oxygen, nitrogen, and whatever else is in there, carbon dioxide. Um, yeah, right, that stuff. <laughs> there can be a tendency for the carbon in the steel to want to go out into the atmosphere. So, so those are the two things that you're really kind of protecting against when you do foil or any of these things. So, yeah, there are definitely um, coatings that you, you can put on there to prevent it. And um, I think... You know, I, I think their effectiveness depends on a lot of different variables. I, my experience has been that there's never one that's kind of a cure-all, but there's definitely a number of products out there and um, probably take a little bit of experimentation to find which works best, which is easiest to clean off, that kind of thing. And with decarb, if you if you hold something at, temp at high enough temperature for long enough, you can, the term I'd heard is burnout, but you can get enough decarb that it'll adversely affect the quality of the steel is that well absolutely at the surface absolutely um uh the advantage that you guys have is that you're grinding everything right after after heat treat so you will grind away a small amount of decarb if it's there anyways so you probably could tolerate a little bit but if if you've austenitized it for too long or you or at too high of a temperature you could definitely um, decarburize a pretty thick layer on the surface, and, and that could certainly cause you a problem, yeah. All right. So that decarb is, I mean, the, the actual de the, the carbon layer is a thin layer, but when you draw the carbon out of the steel, it's not drawing, you don't get a leveling effect where if you pull a little bit out at the surface, it changes the consistency throughout the blade. 
Not really, because uh, because the you know even though you're you've got enough energy in there, it's at high enough temperature that the carbon is mobile inside the steel structure. Uh, it's still relatively slow, so it it's quick to leave the surface. Mm -hmm. And yes, it will kind of fill backfill from the the center, the bulk of the steel, but it's quite slow to the point where it's kind of irrelevant. All right, that all right, that makes sense because I've seen if you get a blade too thin, an edge too thin before heat treat. Mm -hmm. that the first couple of thousands of that edge just it, it's just crap i mean it it'll break away well well yeah exactly because think about that that thin edge right it's it's going to heat up much faster than your one eighth inch thick spine right so it's spending a lot more time at that temperature than your spine is for instance yeah all right and but that i'm glad to know that it hasn't changed because the the fix for that in the past, and I've actually fixed, I see it a lot with some of the Japanese style blades that are thinner blades. And the fix has been, you just grind a few thousands off and reprofile it. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I don't see any problem with all that. Right. Um, yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure that the carbon was coming out of a relatively small area and you hadn't changed the makeup on the, the blade in general. That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Well, I better hurry up and finish this sweet baby Jesus. I just earned another one. <laughs> nice alright now we get to talk about the fun and exciting world of quenching mm -hmm. what exactly is quenching and is it something that furries do that I can't tell you <laughs> um, Kyle I know has a little bit of experience with furries that he <laughs> yeah. may or may not be willing to share but um, <clears throat> I ended I inadvertently stayed at the same hotel as a furry convention. That's the story he told yeah. us. Anyways. Did you get squinched when I was <laughs> when I was when I was uh, when I was doing a working on a project at Navistar out in Denver, Colorado? I ended up uh, needing to stay. We weren't exactly sure how long uh, the rest of the project was going to take on Wednesday, so I just made my flight change for Sunday morning, and. Uh, yeah, apparently uh, Friday and Saturday, the whole hotel was completely full of uh, people dressed up in furry outfits. It was very, very disturbing. What part of the country did you say this was? It was Denver, Colorado. Oh, okay. Near Commerce City. I, I'm just specific. asking for a friend. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> that was, yeah, that was like uh, eight years ago now, man. Ooh. Not to digress too far, but Kyle, do you recall... Three or four or five years ago, there was a convention at one of the uh, hotels by the airport here, and they had a fire. Oh. And so at 11 o'clock at night, all these people in their furry costumes ran out onto the street because they thought the hotel was on fire. I, and the news cameras were there, which is why I saw it. Yeah, I, I do remember. But uh, it was just the funniest thing in the world to see all these people in these costumes milling around on the street while the fire trucks were outside. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So back, back, to, that out. back to quenching. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll leave that in it'll be a, some good good humor relief for uh, people that have stuck it out yeah. this long and just for the record everybody Kyle is the one that seems to have a problem with furries I think it is a perfectly natural and probably fun way to express yourself so be sure to direct that hate mail to Kyle <laughs> at knifeperspective.com yeah uh, so you want to talk about some of the, the main mediums we quench in uh, we well I Tip, depending on the steel, the, for the steels I use, I either oil quench or plate quench. 
And with your plates, do you blow compressed air in with it or just the just the plates? I use uh, one-inch uh, aluminum plates with positive pressure. I use a – I've modified vices, so they're two large one-inch plates. Um, mm-hmm. And then – actually, this is one of the things I wanted to ask Jared about. Uh, what I've had to do now – if the, as the plates start to warm up between quenching, I actually have additional plates that I keep in the freezer. So I'll pull a one-inch plate out of the freezer and clamp mm-hmm. it between my two one-inch plates uh, to draw the heat out of them. Uh, what I've toyed with doing is putting um, quarter-inch aluminum uh, flights or fins on the back sides of the plates to give them more surface area to work as a heat sink to help draw the heat off faster. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't sure if I needed to worry about cooling the plates too quickly. Cooling your quenching plates or your uh, blade? Yeah. If, if the quenching plates start pulling the heat off too quickly. Well, um, I, I don't think you can really quench too fast. In fact, if you look at the data sheet here, it says oil, uh, high-pressure gas quenching or salt quenching even. All of those, I think, are going to be faster quenches than All right. than plate quenching. Good. I've got some time with a the mill then. Um, the, th- the thing that you can run into, um, and again, you really kind of have the best possible condition because you're 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 really quenching a piece that's got a constant cross section uh is distortion and same as heating up you want to cool all parts of that component down at the same rate and that's why i like the positive pressure of clamping it between the two plates mm-hmm. is not only have i gotten really consistent um i mean it pulls the heat off very consistently on either side but placing it under pressure between two mm-hmm. perfectly flat plates um, I think I've only lost in 10 years, I think I've lost six blades to warping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things I do with my aluminum plates, I do a similar thing with the vice and the plates. I use a, another fine myth sprayer, actually the one that I used for leather. And I spray, spray my plates down with water in between to help cool them down also, um, between heating or before, when I, in between putting knives in there to help cool them down a little faster. I used to do that or alcohol um, before I stumbled on the, just if I keep a, an extra set of plates in the freezer and I'll take one of the plates out of the freezer and clamp it between, it pulls the heat off a whole lot faster. Okay. And I try to, uh, I try to keep the plates cooled to about 70 or 80 de- or about 70 degrees. Yeah. So you're you're um, usually heat treating multiple um, blanks at one time or multiple blades at one time. Five. I'm usually heat treating five to six five to six blades at a time. Right, right. So yeah, you, you got to make sure that whatever whatever system you're using, it's it's quick enough so you're not leaving that six blade that in there and to for, make sure you know, that the first four or five blades don't heat my quenching up so much that it's at too high a temperature to pull off the, the heat fast enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know some of the, I know some of the guys that still use uh, oil or uh, some of the other quenchants. Some of them have three or four quench tanks, so when one starts to heat up, they can switch to the next. I don't do enough with oil sense. or oil hardening steel to to have more than one. But yeah, I've heard of people doing a lot of that. Uh, Doghouse Forge had a really cool 
setup where he had a like 50 gallon trash can and he had a couple like probably 10 inch PVC pipes that he sunk in there and they have different uh, etchings in there. And then he filled all around the tubes with like a vermiculite or uh, some sort of oil absorbing stone uh, so that he doesn't tip them over. And uh, he just dunks or once he's uh, done heat treating, he'll put them in, put them in there to kind of soak up some of that oil. Yeah, I've got, uh, I've got a big ammo can. Awesome. Um, I guess it was, it was probably artillery shells. It's a, uh, probably two and a half foot tall ammo can, um, that I put a, uh, yeah. a 110 heating element in, um, so that I can consistently bring it up to a fixed temperature. Um, and then I've got a thermostat on it and I just mm. watch the thermostat to make sure the, the quench it stays in range. But it's it's enough volume that it does a good job of dispersing the heat. Uh, and if yeah. things get out of hand, I got a big cool. metal lid I can throw on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I use a similar ammo can, except uh, mine's not that tall. Uh, holds about three gallons of oil. It has a latch on either side, so it works out really well. So one of the other quench options is doing an edge quench uh, for. So lots of people call that a differential heat treat. Uh, do you want to talk about some of the advantages that might be for a edge quench, Jared? So, um, so, mm-hmm. so you're heating up the entire blade, yep. right? And then, and then, and then you're quenching just the, the cutting surface, the cutting edge. Yeah. Like about halfway up the blade. And then you'll go ahead and plunge the rest of the blade. So you get Martin side at the edge and then you might get perlite running up to the spine. Uh, and the idea is, you know, a hard edge and a soft spine. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like it gives you a nice a nice kind of combination of, of, like you said, a hard edge and a, and a tough blade that'll, you know, withstand some, some kind of abuse. And, and what kind of knives would use that typically? Probably not a kitchen knife. Traditionally, it's for when you're trying to combine a hard cutting edge and a flexible blade. My concern has always been the transition zone between the martensite and the perlite and the other structures. Mm-hmm. That traditionally, that transition zone is a failure point, isn't it? Sure, it, it, it can be. You're definitely so. One of the things that happens when you transform um, austenite, the high temperature form, to to martensite is there's a volume expansion actually. Um, that martensitic structure is a little bit bigger than the austenitic structure. So what you end up with is you've got the steel that's not transformed. The steel that has transformed to martensite, the edge, is wants to grow, and the steel that hasn't transformed uh, doesn't want to grow. So there's a conflict there, and there's some stress that builds up at that interface, like you just said. Now, you know, having said that, in my mind, it's kind of only a problem if it's a problem, you know. Um it's difficult. It's not impossible, but it's difficult to measure that kind of residual stress. Um, obviously, if the blade pops in two, then you know you exceeded the yield strength, and you got to go back to the drawing board. But uh, you know, it's a it's a technique that's used in industry all the time. Uh, selective hardening like that. Can you can you get the same result if you fully quenching it to to form martensite throughout the structure, and then? temper back do a differential temper rather than a differential hardening 
Uh, sure. So you're kind of over-tempering the spine area, right? Uh, the technique that I've used is that I'll, I'll quench the entire blade so that I've get consistent structure throughout it. And then I will do an initial temper to whatever I want the edge to be at. And then I use uh, a wet mm -hmm. cloth and a vise so that the edge is clamp clamped with the wet cloth. And then use a, tor a torch to draw back the temper along the spine while keeping the cutting edge cool. Yeah, yeah. And I might be I might yeah. be excessive. Gotcha. I always thought that having consistent grain structure throughout and then softening it with the temper. Yeah. So so like I said, the the, the conflict in the in the differential quenching is is the volume expansion that you get when you transform the austenite to martensite. You don't have that conflict and with the differential tempering like you just described. So I mean, there's that you know you, you definitely I would consider that an improvement. And the question is, um, is it belt and suspenders or is it? Uh... And you don't know unless it doesn't break. Yeah. I mean. Uh, personally, I look at it that m my technique is superior, but that's because I'm trying to sell knives. That's kind of the way I would look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't argue with you on that point. But, uh, you know, in fact, you know what? You ever go to the uh, hardware store and you see a, uh, a yeah. hand uh, crosscut saw and the, the teeth are black? Right, and the rest of the thing is all shiny and silver, and you can bend that thing back and forth as many times as you want, right? Right. Well, those teeth have been been probably induction hardened, but it's the same thing. They've hardened those teeth, and the rest of it have, they have have left as is, and um, and you have exactly that effect. Now that's the kind of saw that you buy ten bucks at Menards all day long, so it's not probably what you consider a high quality tool. That might not. That's not necessarily the tool that won the Western Frontier. Probably not. But for 10 bucks. Uh, with an induction heating, that's when you use a, an electric coil? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You use okay. an electric coil <clears throat> to heat up. Um, uh, there's all different kinds of induction heating, but yeah. It's usually done uh, on a finished part selectively, so when you just want to harden a certain part of it. Mm -hmm. I know... Uh, for some of the differential heat treat stuff too, they they do what they call a hamon. A lot of Japanese knives have that where they put clay on there during the the heating and then quench, uh, so that that clay uh, gives it more mass to slow the the cooling rate down. So you get a get like a change, and they'll they'll actually etch that whole bevel, and you'll get get whatever pattern they put with the clay on there. Some people do like little saw teeth. Some people do lines, different hatching uh, to try to make, you can actually see that in the, the hardness when you, when you polish it. Wow. It, it, it's a beautiful artistic touch. And actually it's a, a perfect example of that, uh, uh, that, uh, that change in structure where the, uh, where you get the Martin site meeting, perlite or one of the other structures. Um, but it is a, a beautiful technique. Uh, so. <clears throat> in fear, <clears throat> but beautiful. <laughs> I think we kind I think we kind of <laughs> talked about everything about quenching. Do you guys have anything else? Um, no, no. I, I feel like you've quenched my thirst for knowledge. All right. Now, now we're wow. going to, now we're going to temper your thirst for knowledge. Uh, so. Oh, wow. uh, what uh, 
let's uh, explain a little bit why why we'd want to temper it once we quench it. And what is tempering? So, so tempering happens after the quenching process, and it's usually a low temperature uh, heat. Uh, the temperature of the temper uh, defines the final hardness of the part. Um, a lot of steels, like this one, recommend a double temper, so you temper it uh, for however many number of hours, uh, then you let it cool to room temperature, and then you temper it a second time. Uh, the function of that is to, it will lower the hardness a little bit, but it greatly improves the the, the toughness of, of the part. So that's really the prime benefit of tempering is to improve the toughness. You get almost all of the hardness and you get a lot better toughness. So it'll make it less brittle, so it's a more useful tool. Yeah. So your edge is less likely to chip. Yeah. Um and I see this one because it's got so much chrome. They recommend not tempering. It's kind of funny the way they've worded this, right? They give you a tempering range of 400 to 1200 F, but then they say you probably shouldn't do it between eight and 1100. But that's, that's a result of kind of, um, it, it tends to deplete the chrome in certain areas and it can, it can cause problems with corrosion. Um, but you're, you're tempering quite a bit lower than that, I think, right? Yeah, I, what I do is usually in the, well, with CPM 154, super secret, I'm not to, all right, I usually temper between 4 and 450, depending yeah. on on how it was quenched and what it's going to be used for. Yeah, on the uh, on the, the next little part, they give a really good chart with um, what you austenitize the steel at the different temperatures, mm -hmm. 1900, 1950, and 2000, and then different, like an oil and an oil and freeze, um, what quench or what hardnesses you can expect at the different tempering temperatures. And the, the freeze in that, they're usually talking about what, like negative 250, 275 Fahrenheit. So it's kind of too, you don't have a whole lot of choice. You have either uh, dry ice temperature and alcohol, or you have liquid nitrogen temperatures. <laughs> so um, generally, I mean, you can put it in a freezer or something, but that's you don't get. I don't think enough um, yeah, reduction but, in temperature. And but that was my point. They're not talking about just putting it into the freezer. They're talking about negative right. two hundred fifty, negative two hundred seventy-five degrees. Right, right, right. Although uh, this winter in Chicago, or a little bit of <laughs> just throwing it outside for a little while. Yeah, yeah, you might. <laughs> and you'll get a few extra points of hardness out of that. Other than the hardness, will it have a significant change on the structure of the the grain structure or the carbide structure? It won't affect the carbide structure, but what, I mean, that the purpose of the, so if you just think of the freezing as a continuation of the quenching process is all it is. And so um, you, the purpose of the quenching, again, is to take that high temperature form, that austenite, and convert it into martensite. And by the time you get to the, the typical temperature of, say, your quenching plates or the oil bath or whatever you're using, you've still got a little bit of austenite left in there. So that freezing process just continues the quenching down to a little bit lower temperature and you're converting that last little bit of austenite into martensite. Mm -hmm. And that's what gives you the extra one or two points of, of yeah. hardness. And, and to be honest, you will even find um, uh, for different applications that, you know, some people will tell you that a little bit of retained austenite in the structure is actually a benefit. 
So, um, you know, it kind of depends on your application. What kind of applications? I think where you want a little bit more toughness. All right. Yeah. So one of the one of the questions we got on Instagram was, uh, does water quenching fifty two one hundred with a ball bearing steel after each tempering cycle help? Um, after the tempering, water quenching after tempering. Yeah, in, be- um, in between in between the tempering cycles. Yeah, does it help? I don't I don't see how it would help at yeah. all. Because um, as part of the tempering cycle, it should come down to room temperature. Yeah. So if you're yeah, from room temperature to room temperature water. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if he's talking. Yeah, I, I mean, I assume the question would be maybe uh, from the tempering temperature. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure, but probably yeah, probably that four or four or five hundred degrees. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure that would be a good idea. Yeah, that actually put some shock into it, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. That's sort of what I was thinking. Yeah, I I would have to. Uh, I would have to recommend against it. You know, I could see if it's a uh, hundred degrees and you want to put it in some room temperature water to make it easier to handle or something maybe, but I would be hesitant to, to, to put it in water at much of any elevated temperature. Yeah, if it's already cool to room temperature, you're not gaining anything. And if you're pulling it out at 400 and then quenching it, I, I think you're going to create problems. Yeah. Certainly not gain anything. And then one of the the questions I actually heard on the Knife Talk podcast, uh, the guy from Doghouse Forge, he was asking uh, why when you temper for two times at two hours um, and everything's fine in a split second uh, when you're grinding can ruin the the hardness of the blade. Um, You overheat it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just, I think it's easy to underestimate how much temperature you can generate at the at the grinding belt. Yeah, especially at the edge, you have such a small cross section that it can and heat up really quickly. Yeah, yeah. The two reasons I grind barehanded are one because yeah. I don't want anything any loose fabric near my hands that could catch, and the other is so I can feel when the heat when the steel starts to warm up. Yeah. Uh, which actually, um, I almost forgot to ask my question. So on some of these data sheets, if you look down in the small print, it'll sometimes tell you that the temperatures given, times and temperatures are for a one-inch plate or a half-inch plate, mm-hmm. so, uh, specifically for the soak times. When I'm working with you know eighth of an inch or, th- or thinner stock, is there any sort of equation or formula for how you adjust? Because I know like some of these will have two hour soak times. And if you soak a one eighth, eighth inch blade for two hours at 1900 degrees, you're not going to have a useful blade left too much. Yeah. Is there a formula? I don't know. I tell you what I would do though, to answer the question real easily is just put a, a thermocouple on one of your blades and, uh, and, and, once you hit 30 minutes at temperature or however many minutes you want at temperature, then, you know, that's your heating time. Mm-hmm. That's probably the easiest way to figure that out. All right. Because, because, you know, one thing you got to be a little bit careful with thermal processing equipment is your temperature is what the temperature says on display, but that's really um, a function of where the thermocouple is located. It's where your heating elements are located. It's the calibration of your thermocouple, the calibration of your instrument, the uniformity of your survey or the uniformity of your furnace. 
If you if your um, thermocouple is six inches away from the blade that's in in right. still air, that's not necessarily the temperature of the blade. Right. So it's always you know not a bad idea to kind of double check yourself um, with the thermocouple on your part, and that's probably how I would set your time and temperature. <sighs> you know, I was really hoping for an easier answer. That's going to be like effort and stuff. I'm gonna have to take notes. You could just get Kyle to do it, and then he could tell you. Yeah, Dan, Dan's gonna have to get a thermocouple. Kyle, what's that? Dan's gonna have to get a thermocouple. <laughs> You're assuming I don't have one already. Hey, are you guys aware of these things called temple sticks? Temple sticks? Yeah, uh, I've seen the. Uh, are you talking about the the little cones? Well, it's a it's a marker that you can mark it on your blade, and it will turn color once it hits a certain temperature. Yeah, I, I have not. I've heard of those. Yeah. Um, I've had little um, cones that will melt at different temperatures and I'll okay. lay a piece of steel out in the kiln okay. and then lay the cones across that. And that's how I find if I've got cold spots in my kiln. Oh, okay. Uh, but you said it's called a thermostick? Temple stick. Temple stick. Yeah. Ah, a, you get them at Master or whatever. that in mere minutes. Yeah. <laughs> McMaster car has, if you type in temperature sticks in McMaster car, they give you a whole, whole range going from 104 degrees all the way up to 2000 degrees. Uh, I'm going to be all over that. Yeah. For the range we're looking at, it looks like they have 1900, 1950 and 2000 degrees. So looks like they go in almost 50 degree implement or increments, everything after about 950 Fahrenheit. That's outstanding. And once I go to an Argon, uh, once I put an argon flush on my kiln, I don't have to worry about it being wrapped in foil. I'll actually be able to read it. Yeah. So a 1950 degree Fahrenheit stick is 1458. And if you live in the right. great great uh, area of Chicago, you can pick it up by night or by 8 a.m. But if you order at uh, 10 o'clock at night. Oh, I live in Chicago. I'm so much better. <laughs> it's, a, it's it's one of one of the few benefits we gotta we gotta use what we can. Oh, well, you got fogs yeah, on the street, and you got <laughs> McMaster car. Yeah. So I think that's all the questions we had, um, or that's all the questions I had, at least, and the questions that came in from the listeners. Uh, we got quite a few duplicates of different questions, so we just kind of went with some of the main ones. Do you have any other questions, Dan? I don't, although I really feel like we, uh, I really feel like we haven't given our sponsors the, the love that they deserve, <laughs> such as Dogwood Custom Knives, www.dogwoodcustomknives for all your cutlery needs, and KH Daily, because, you know, they make knives and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Awesome. So, uh, yeah. My turn. <laughs> so uh, you can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Apple Podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, and you can email us any any concerns at podcasts at knifeperspective dot com. If there's a a more preferred podcast uh, service you would like us to be on, uh, shoot us an email at podcasts at knifeperspective dot com, and we'll work on getting that on. So uh, you can find me, Cage Daily Knives, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Kyle at CageDailyKnives.com is the, the email address for 
my knives. And if you need to get in touch with me for the podcast, I have a Kyle at knifeperspective.com email. Uh, Dan, you want to tell me where to find you? Uh, you can find me. Uh, you can find the company website, Dogwood Custom Knives, at www.dogwoodcustomknives. Uh, Facebook is Dogwood Custom Knives, as well as Instagram. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, uh, Dan at Dogwood Custom Knives. I have a Knife Perspective email at Dan at knifeperspective.com. I haven't checked that in a while. I hope there's nothing. I hope there's nothing important in there. I'm, I'm going to check that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, also want to remind y'all that, um, Old Town Cutlery, uh, carries both Kyle and I's knives. Go by, check them out. Uh, they're good people. Uh, been really good to work with. Um, I think that's about all I got to add. Yeah. Thank you, Jared, for coming on. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug this, uh, this time around or are you still, still flying under the radar? No, you cannot find me anywhere at all on social media. Um, but uh, if you have a burning desire to get in touch with me, I'm sure Kyle can, it, can put If you, you have there. a question for the metallurgist, feel free to call, uh, email Kyle at KH Daily Knives or Kyle at knifeperspective.com. He will forward that to you and then handcraft an email specifically for your needs and respond to you in a, a timely fashion. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get those, we'll try to get any questions answered. And, uh, if you, hopefully some of that'll, uh, spawn some more podcasts. We'd love, love having Jared on a wealth of knowledge in, in the steel and, uh, heat treating realm of things. I, I, Jared, if you don't mind, I'd really like to have you on, um, and, for a follow-up segment. Sure. And, uh, I think, um, I think next, maybe uh, maybe it's time to talk to a dealer, find out about the darker side of uh, knife making. Yeah, yeah, we we can definitely try to do that. Tease tease some stuff. I know we have a have a bunch of different people that are kind of on the line that have uh, bit, expressed a lot of interest in coming on the podcast. Yeah, so um, I guess uh, I guess it's my turn to find a guest. So you know, I can be a host, seeing how it's past my turn. And all, just saying. Yeah. Oh, uh, one thing that apparently is uh, really important with podcasts: if you can leave us a leave us a review on iTunes, that'd be greatly appreciated. Um, that helps us get found and get served to more people when they type in knives or uh, look for different things that are inside our uh, inside our what our podcasts are about. So. If you can leave us a review, that'd be that'd be great to see. Um, yeah. I, I always like hearing nice things about me. <laughs> yeah, we know you do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yep, yeah, our, our our music is by Tom the Brit. We'll roll that now. Good night, everybody. Night, guys. Well, let's take it to the edge, cause that's what's expected in this discussion. This is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're gonna talk about our things now. Cause that's what's expected. It's the night prospective.